Well, good morning, Antioch. Great to see you all. My name's Pete, and I'm one of the pastors here. If you were uh, here last week, you may remember I uh, really gracefully ended the sermon by hacking my lungs out. Um, so apologies for that. And the truth is, I'm still battling it three weeks in. Um, all the grandmas this morning have been giving me little uh, cough drops and pills, and... Um, <laughs> One of them was like a gummy. I don't know what that was, but um, you guys all look like you're glowing, and this is going to be amazing. So. I'm just kidding, but uh, I will try to make this make through this uh, this talk without <clears throat> losing my voice here. But we may be in for a repeat, so uh, just be on your toes. It could end at any minute. So. Savor every word. Um, we are uh, in week two of the season of Advent, which is a time that's been set aside by followers of Jesus for centuries now. All over the world, we join with the Church of Christ uh, in a season of anticipation, uh, looking forward to Christ's arrival in the world. And when it comes to Advent, we think backwards to the first coming of Jesus, which we will celebrate at Christmas, but we also think forward to the second coming. And, and it's days like this or moments like this that we get to share in the pain and in the longing, in that quiet, dark place, um, that as though as, as so difficult to talk through some of the things that we are experiencing and the tragedies that we're facing in our church and in our world, um, those points of darkness actually cause us to long and to hope for the light in a way that allows us to hope, um, or to grieve, but not as those without hope. Right? That we grieve and we lament and we mourn the brokenness inside us and inside the world, but we do it with our eyes upon Jesus and knowing that his second coming will be just as real as his first and even more triumphant and perfect and final. And, um, and so our hope today is that to invite each other into this hopeful grieving and longing and uh, yearning for that day. So... Um, the series that we're in is called The Incarnate Deity, and it basically is asking the question, what is it that God has revealed about himself through the act of entering human history in the person of Jesus? What kind of God would do that? What kind of God who is the creator would demote himself to creation? What kind of God would inconvenience himself lower himself or limit himself for the sake of the world that he created and loved. And so I think there's probably dozens of different characteristics or attributes that we could identify within the incarnation. Last week we looked at the idea that in Jesus we see a God who is self-limiting, who denies himself comfort and freedom for the sake of bringing life to the world and saw that then as a pattern that we could live by as followers of Jesus as well, denying ourselves freedom and comfort, de denying ourselves and taking up our cross to follow after a self-limiting God. This morning I wanna look at the idea that in the incarnation we get a picture of a God who is compassionate. In the incarnation we celebrate a compassionate God. 
If you were um, <clears throat> to ask the people who know you best to use one word to describe what you're like, it would be an interesting thing to hear their answers. Oftentimes we do get those words, but only uh, when our life has come to an end. Do you know what the word that Jesus' friends used most frequently in the New Testament to describe his character? One word that's used more than any other, and that, that is the word compassionate. When his closest friends and followers thought back on their time with Jesus, walking with him, sharing meals with him, doing ministry with him, learning from him, they looked at his life and said, if there's one word, Jesus was a man of compassion. A few examples, Matthew 9. <clears throat> when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Matthew 14, when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Matthew 15, Jesus called his disciples and to him and said, I have compassion for these people, for they have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry or they may collapse on the way. In Matthew 20, Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately they received their sight and followed him. And so, of course, these are descriptions of Jesus as an adult, as a rabbi, um, and the, the, the impression that he left upon his close followers. But this wouldn't have been surprising for anyone that were to come to a place of understanding that this man, Jesus, was actually the incarnation of the God of Israel, who had been leading and loving his people for years and years before that. And so if you go back to the very first place where God chooses to, in, uh, in human words, try to articulate who he is and what he's like, it's in the book of Exodus chapter 34. And a man named Moses is having this incredible with, encounter with God, with Yahweh, up on the mountaintop. And Moses basically says, I will continue to serve you and follow you and lead your people on your mission in the world. But first, would you at least tell me who you are? Tell me what your name is. And um, what comes very soon after this in Exodus 34 is, is this phrase that uh, the Lord said, or, and he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. So this particular verse, leave it up there for a moment, is God's first and ultimate self-disclosure. And what you need to know about this verse is that this, this is the most quoted verse in the Bible by the Bible. All throughout, all the scriptures that would come after this, especially in the Psalms and in the prophets, all these uh, Hebrew mouthpieces for God continue to call God's people back to this picture. Don't forget, people of God, this is who our God is and this is what he's like. And so dozens and dozens of times the authors of scripture quote this scripture more than any other place. And so <clears throat> what is the very first word that God uses to describe what he's like? It's again this word compassionate. 
And so it would make sense then that in the incarnation, in the life ministry of Jesus, we see the compassion of God in the form of a human. The word of God taking on flesh. Where compassion is no longer simply an idea, but it actually has now a name and a face that we see in Jesus. And we'll break apart the word a little bit. Um, To to have compassion um, comes from these two words. Uh, Com, where we get the idea of like community or a commune or um, communion. It simply means to have in common, to share. Um, And then passion, when we talk about the suffering of Christ at the end of his life, the passion of the Christ. Uh, Also comes from the same word where we talk about a patient. So somebody who is a patient in the hospital is one who is suffering, okay? And so the word compassion, when God describes himself as a compassionate and gracious God, when the New Testament writers describe the heart of Jesus as one of compassion, it means one who is moved by love to share in the suffering of those around them. One who is moved by love to share in the suffering. It's an emotional word. It has to do with a turning or even a churning within us that doesn't just stay in the world of emotions but actually moves us into gracious action to walk with, to sit with, to grieve with, uh, to mourn with. And so many of you, you've been the recipient of compassion When you've gone through difficult times, maybe you yourself have been in a hospital room or have sat in a living room grieving the loss of a loved one and those who came to be with you, to sit with you, to cry with you, to care for you, um, to be silent with you. In, In a significant way, that's an expression of compassion that they're not gonna leave you to suffer on your own, but they will share in your suffering. And for those of us that have had those moments, it's hard to imagine how we would have made it alone, right? How we would have made it without those people to come alongside us. And so, um, when we look at Jesus again, we see that compassion isn't just a feeling of sympathy, but it's, actu- it's actually something that would move us to show up and to act. And so the first thing I want to say is that this is one of the most beautiful um, truths that, that I can think of when it comes to asking, who is that baby in the manger? And what does that king represent? And what is his kingdom going to be marked by? And what does that, what does this virtue of compassion reveal to us about the God who made us and knows us and loves us and is saving us? Brennan Manning is one of my uh, top five guys that's helped me understand the compassionate heart of Jesus, the loving acceptance of the Father. And uh, let me share with you uh, a chunk on his reflection about God entering um, as a compassionate God, God revealing himself as a compassionate God. He says, by entering human history, God has demolished all previous conceptions of who God is and what man is supposed to be. We are suddenly presented with a God who suffers crucifixion. This is not the God of the philosophers who speak with cool detachment about the supreme being. 
A supreme being would never allow spit on his face. Jesus Christ has irreparably changed the world. When preached purely, his word exalts, frightens, shocks, and forces us to reassess our whole life. The gospel breaks our train of thought, shatters our comfortable piety, and cracks open our capsule truths. The flashing spirit of Jesus Christ breaks new paths everywhere. His sentences stand like quivering swords of flame because he, could, he did not come to bring peace, but a revolution. The gospel is not a children's fairy tale, but rather a cutting edge, rolling thunder, convulsive earthquake in the world of the human spirit. And so for centuries now, followers of Jesus have been inspired by the revelation of a compassionate God. And when we come to understand that the center of the universe isn't a God who's primarily angry and trying to get revenge on those who have wronged him, but a God who first and foremost interacts with all humans from a place of shared suffering, then it does create a revolution. It creates the kind of movement and the kind of community that the world had never seen until the Jesus movement began. Let me reflect on just maybe a couple uh, interesting cases, uh, both from the late 60s in the United States. Um, this is a uh, picture that I have framed in my office. <clears throat> and uh, two men that I consider to be heroes in the faith. And uh, you may recognize them as Billy Graham and Johnny Cash. And uh, they were close friends and ministry partners uh, for a lot of years, and most people don't know that. Um, but I have this frame just to the right of my desk, and I see it every day. And uh, I don't know, in some ways, I'd like to think that if there was the perfect man I could be, he would be some sort of mashup combo of these two guys. <coughs> the uh, spirit of Billy Graham and the soul of Johnny Cash sounds like something I'd like to be known for. But... It's also cool just to look at them. So, <laughs> um, Johnny Cash is one of his most uh, famous and, uh, and memorable albums was when he played um, a show at Folsom Prison, and uh, that went on to become his best-selling record, and uh, just an incredible live recording, like energy you've never heard. Um, that was in 1968, but in 1958, he did his first, pr his first prison show, and it was in San Quentin. And um, there's, if you know anything about his story, he's a rough dude, but felt like if there was uh, a place that God would call him to come and to share his gifts of music and hope, then it was in this rough uh, prison environment where these guys are overlooked and abandoned and without hope. And so the San Quentin uh, show was kind of a, a groundbreaking um, experience that uh, he, he played lots of shows in prisons after that. But uh, I was looking at the Rolling Stone review for this album, and here's what they said about it. Johnny Cash remembers the forgotten men. They love him. Singing inside a prison to men whose spirits are being destroyed by our mindless penal system is Johnny Cash's kind of revolution. Music becomes spirituality in the context of the prison. Music is inherently destructive of everything 
penology stands for. Music affirms, music liberates. And I just, it resonates deeply with me as we reflect on a God who leaves the comfort and safety of his home to enter into a place where there's brokenness, darkness, and hopelessness. And through the gift of entering in, becoming one, choosing to give up freedom to go behind closed bars, closed doors, and bring life to these people. I love it. Another example from the same time period has to do with the civil rights movement and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. um, leading uh, one of the most prominent leaders, of course, in this movement. And it had gotten to a point where the tone of the campaign had picked up a sense of urgency. And if you can see these protest signs, um, we demand equal rights now. We demand equal housing now. We demand first-class citizenship now. And um, at one point, Dr. King, in the midst of this time, we know gets imprisoned in uh, Birmingham, Alabama. And there's a group of religious leaders, uh, priests and pastors, that write a letter to Dr. King saying, hey, we're with you, we're behind you, we want to see um, equal, equal rights for the black community, but we would encourage you to slow it down a little bit, to be a little bit more patient, because the urgency and the tone of your message is making us uncomfortable, and it's not gonna find a receptive audience. So if you could start thinking long game, long game, Instead of months, think years. Instead of years, think decades. Then we promise you that we'll walk with you um, into into this vision of equality. And Dr. King receives that letter uh, while sitting in a jail cell in Birmingham, and he writes his famous response. And um, this is super weird, but I'm actually going to ask somebody else to read it so I can say my words. Radomski, what do you think? Come grab a mic. (laughs) You can just, uh, here, here's my notes. Oh, got that one. All right, come out here then. You look weird over there. Look weird everywhere. That's true. (laughs) It's long. All right says, I guess it is easy for those who have never felt the stinging darts of segregation to say, wait. I got got your... But when you have seen vicious mobs lynch your mothers and fathers at will and drown your sisters and brothers at whim, when you have seen hate-filled policemen curse, kick, brutalize, and even kill your black brothers and sisters with impunity, when you see the vast majority of your 20 million Negro brothers smothering in an airtight cage of poverty, in the midst of an affluent society. When you suddenly find your tongue twisted and your speech stammering as you seek to explain to your six-year-old daughter why she cannot go to the public amusement park that has just been advertised on television and see tears welling up in her little eyes when she is told that fun town is closed to colored children and see the depressing clouds of inferiority begin to form in her little mental sky and see her begin to distort her little personality by unconsciously developing a bitterness towards white people. 
when you have to concoct an answer for a five-year-old son asking an agonizing pathos, Daddy, why do white people treat colored people so mean? When you take a cross-country drive and find it necessary to sleep night after night in the uncomfortable corners of your automobile because no motel will accept you. When you are humiliated day in and day out by nagging signs reading, white and colored. When your first name becomes the N-word and your middle name becomes boy, <clears throat> however old you are, and your last name becomes John, and when your wife and mother are never given the respected title Mrs., when you are harried by day and haunted by night by the fact that you are a Negro, living constantly at tiptoe stance, never knowing what to expect next, and plagued with inner fears and outer resentments, when you are forever fighting a degenerated sense of nobodiness, then you will understand why we find it difficult to wait. Thanks, man. Appreciate that. What's, what's Dr. King saying here? To those that are asking him not to get so worked up, not to be so urgent, not to be in such a hurry to pursue equality and dignity for all people. He's saying, will you enter in and try to see things through our eyes? Will you do your best to imagine what it would be like? Will you identify with us? Will you share in our suffering? It's a plea for compassion. And so many of the social divisions back then and in our world today, there's so much that's confusing and so much debatable and so much that's polarized that either you have to be 100% on this side or 100% on that side or you're the enemy. I think the invitation of the gospel is to engage in a messy world as people of compassion that are willing to imagine the wor what the world looks like through the eyes of another, that are willing to imagine what it would be like to walk in their shoes and would even be willing to take those steps courageously and bravely and motivated by the love of God to share in the suffering of imperfect, messy, complicated people wherever we find them. So many of Jesus' parables then continue to unveil the compassionate heart of God. Even if you think of what are probably the two most famous parables, the parable of the Good Samaritan and the parable of the prodigal son or sons. Both of them give this picture of somebody who is extending their heart towards the other. And if you think about the parable of the, of the Good Samaritan, for example, we won't turn there and read, but the way Jesus tells the story is that uh, a man is walking down the road and he gets jumped and beat up and left for the dead. And then a priest and a Levite and a religious teacher all walk by and go to the other side of the road. And then this Samaritan comes and has compassion upon um, this guy and cares for him, shares in his suffering, and tends to his wounds. Now, if you think about the way Jesus is telling that story, it's really interesting. Because he doesn't say there's a man an expert in the law heading down the road and up 
ahead, he sees somebody getting beat up. And so as he gets closer, he sees a priest and a Levite walk by, but this expert in the law gets there and he finds this uh, beat up person. And he sees that that beat up person is a Samaritan. But this expert in the law, motivated by the compassion of God, goes and cares for his enemy. Whose perspective does Jesus tell the story from? He tells it from the story of the man who gets beat up, not from the perspective of the man who heroically saves the day. And so as he's trying to inspire the hearts of his listeners towards a life of compassion, he doesn't start by saying, imagine how heroic you could be in your love and in your work for justice. He says, I want you to first imagine that you are the man beat up and bruised for walking on a road you weren't supposed to walk on. And then the person who owed you no compassion, no love, no mercy, no forgiveness, the person that you had mistreated and ignored your entire life, that person comes and tends to your needs. Do you see how different those two stories are? And the result is that when we see God entering into the world in compassion, we recognize ourselves first and foremost as the recipients of that grace and of that love and of that mercy. And so finally at the end of that chapter, he says to go and to do likewise. Go and to do likewise. To enter into the suffering of those in our world. And so for us today, as we end 2018, it's not hard to identify those who are in pain, those who are suffering, and those who are in need of the compassion of Jesus in the form of the church. For me, one of the places that God has put on my heart and open doors to engage, uh, and it's the same as many of you, has to do with our migrant communities, specifically Latino. And I know a whole bunch of you guys, I saw probably 20 Antiochers at the Latino Community Association banquet the other day, um, just there trying to show up, to listen, um, to understand what life is like um, in somebody else's shoes. And actually this weekend, I'm going to go down to Tijuana for a couple days and spend time um, learning more about what's happening with what, what, what ended up being the result of the caravan and the 4,000 migrants that are living in a stadium without food or water or basic supplies. And uh, we're going to do just a little bit of basic relief work, but ultimately just show up and say, we are with you, we care about you. And even though this is messy, and I don't know about the politics of it or all that kind of stuff, but we simply see those who are suffering and we want to share in that suffering. And we want to recognize our face in the face of the suffering and see in, the, in a mirror, so to sense, in a sense that we are the ones to whom God has come and shared in our suffering. So even those, one of those first two verses I shared with you about Jesus, it says, when he saw the, compa- the crowds, he had compassion on them. 
which is so interesting even to think about Jesus being fully God and perfectly moral in every way, but there's even something that happened within him when with his two human eyes, he looked out over the crowds. And so for so many of us, the road to compassion begins with learning to see. Learning to see others. Learning to recognize forgotten people that are easy to ignore and easy to overlook. Learning from communities of color, learning from the poor, learning from other marginal and oppressed people groups throughout history and throughout uh, the world today to open our eyes. And like Jesus, we find that oftentimes when we really see these people, and maybe they're the people we live with or live down the street or live on the other side of the world, something happens. And the last thing I'll say is, what do you do if you find that when you're honest, you're not necessarily a compassionate person? What do you do if you're sitting here today and go, yeah, um, I wish I were more like that, but the truth is I'm just not. This would be a funny time for me to cough and walk away, huh? <laughs> I think I can make it. <laughs> um, Paul uses really interesting language, and I'll end with Colossians chapter three. He says, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity. And so he reminds us, these people and us as well, of their identity. Chosen by God, made holy, and loved by him. If that's who we are, then how should we live? He says, clothe yourselves first and foremost with compassion. Now the metaphor that he uses here is that these character traits of compassion and humility and kindness and gentleness are things, yes, that we would love to see grow naturally from the inside of us, out of our identity, but there's certain times where we just have to put them on. And it's way less complicated than we think. What do you do if you realize you're not wearing pants? <laughs> you put some on, <laughs> right? You don't even need to examine your heart or try to figure out how you ended up with no pants that particular day. You simply put some on, right? And I think that's what Paul's saying. What do you do when you realize that you're not a compassionate, kind, gentle? Put it on. Cover yourself in it. And that may sound like fake it till you make it, and there's actually something to that. It's saying, choose to live this way. That when you see someone in suffering and sense a nudge from the Spirit to enter, to go towards them, even if you don't feel like it, do it. So, in the Good Samaritan story, the Samaritan got off his donkey, got down, and helped the guy up. And so the problem isn't that we don't know how to love people, it's that we don't want to. Sometimes you just have to get off your donkey <laughs> and go love as you've been loved. 
Will you stand and pray with me and we'll invite you to come. And interesting enough, as Jesus shares our sufferings in his life, at the table he invites us to share in his suffering that we might find life in him. So Jesus, thank you that you have revealed to us the compassion of, of your Father, that you have put flesh and bones on an idea and on a word and you've lived it out in not just the most inspiring way but in the most necessary way that all things could be reconciled back to you. And so I pray that this Christmas season we would be a community that enters into this story and enters into this world clothed in your compassion, dearly loved, and willing to share in the sufferings of those that are hurting around us and around the world. We need your spirit to transform our hearts. And so we repent of our uh, unwillingness to get up and to love. And uh, thank you for your gracious mercy that meets us here today. In Jesus' name, amen.